following among the young. Their leader claims that he's providing what the kids want in the 70s. In the 60s, he points out, it was all beads and peace and pot. Now he believes it's boots, bother and booze, and his songs reflect that belief. really does reflect a taste for boots, bother and booze. There's certainly ample evidence of increasingly heavy drinking among children. And as for the boots and bother, these songs, which are anti-authoritarian and violent, do seem to strike a chord with the young audience. Indeed, the cops are coming, and not just to make arrests or harass the young. As part of their crime prevention program, the Police Juvenile Bureau have been sending officers around the schools to put the police point of view. Metal Kids formed via a sort of merger of two previous bands, Heaven and the Biggles. Gary Holton was singing for the latter, a quasi-progressive rock thing, and met Ronnie Thomas and Mickey Waller from the former in the summer of 1972 at a rehearsal space. They became friends, and as Gary grew more disillusioned with the Biggles' ambitions, or lack thereof, Holton once called the band a very expensive disaster, it was decided that Gary Holton, Ronnie Thomas, and Mickey Waller would join forces and form a new group in London in the autumn of 1972. They took the name from a street gang featured in the 1964 novel Nova Express by William S. Burroughs. It was written using the fold-in method, a version of the cut-up method developed by Burroughs with Brian Geisen of enfolding snippets of different texts into the novel. It's part of the Nova Trilogy, or Cut-Up Trilogy, together with The Soft Machine and The Ticket That Exploded. Burroughs considered the trilogy a sequel, or 
mathematical continuation of Naked Lunch. Uranian Willie, the heavy metal kid, also known as Willie the Rat, he wised up the marks. This is war to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screens of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug, flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth, come out. Storm the studio. I was traveling with the intolerable kid on the Nova Lark. We were on the nod after a rumble in the crab galaxy involving this two-way time stock. When you come to the end of a biologic film, just run it back and start over. Nobody knows the difference. Like nobody was there before the film. So they started to run it back and the projector blew up and we lammed out of there on the blast. Hold up in those cool blue mountains, the liquid air in our spines, listening to a little hi-fi junk note. Pictures you write the metal and you nod out a thousand years. Just sitting there in a slate house wrapped in orange flesh robes, the blue mist drifting around us when we get the call. As soon as I set foot on podunk earth, I could smell it, that burnt metal reek of Nova. Already set off the charge, I said to the kid. This is a burning planet. Any minute now, the whole fucking shithouse goes up. Rock and roll! Yeah, yeah. Gary Holton was born in Clapham, South London, the first child to Ernie and Joan Holton, and grew up in Kennington. He was musically talented and a member of a rock band while in school, but his real ambition was to act. Early on in his life, Holton started working in the theater world with the Sadler's Wells Opera Company, debuting in opera appearances by age 11, and he was with that company for three years. In 1966, he had a part in Congreve's Love for Love with Laurence Olivier, and at 14, he played the title role in Minotti's Amal and the Night Visitors. Soon after leaving Westminster School, he joined the Old Vic Theatre Company, and from there he went on to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford. At 17, Gary joined the touring company of Hare, and remained with Hare for two years. When he left that company, he decided to give rock and roll another try. The original pre-recording lineup of the Heavy Metal Kids consisted of Mickey Waller and Cosmo Verico on guitar, Ronnie Thomas on bass, Keith Boyce on drums, and Gary Holton on lead vocals. Boyce had been a touring member of the Long John Baldry Band, and Mickey Waller and Cosmo Verico had previously played together in a different band. The Heavy Metal Kids were soon joined by a keyboard player, Danny Peyronel, previously a member of the Rats, known for their junk shop glam single, Turtle Dove. Around this time, Cosmo left the band for a while and was replaced by Barry Paul. 
The heavy metal kids landed an apprenticeship at the legendary Speakeasy Club, a venue well known as a late-night drinking club popular with customers associated with the music industry. Keith Boyce recalls, One of our managers, the late Laurie O'Leary, managed the Speakeasy Club, so we played there every few weeks at the start of the band. It was a great club to go to, but it was a really tough audience to play to, and mainly full of older, serious musos, some of them big names and music business types. Most bands died a death there, and we had a hard time at first. But Gary became more lippy and funny with the crowd as the weeks went on, and pretty soon we were going down a storm there. So I think that sold Dave D on us, because if you could go down well there, then you could pretty well be sure to go down well anywhere. Atlantic were right behind the band, and they did splash out a lot of money on promotion, which led to some people saying we were a hype. I guess because we had these full-page ads in all the music papers, and we were on the TV and stuff like that. But we had been building up to it since late 1972, so it wasn't an overnight thing, although it might have looked like we just burst onto the scene to some people. A&R man Dave D., a former musician himself, saw the heavy metal kids at the speakeasy and subsequently got them signed to Atlantic Records. And in January 1974, they entered London's Olympic Studios to record their debut album with Dave D. producing. Interestingly, as a young police cadet, Dave D. attended the scene of the car crash on Sunday, April 17, 1960, that took the life of Eddie Cochran and severely injured Gene Vincent. I just happened to be in the police station and they said, look, there's been a car accident. I mean, we didn't know who it was. And would I like to go? So I said, sure. So I went with the policeman. And obviously when we got to the car, it was musicians because there were guitars and that in the car and everything else. Still didn't realize at the time who it was. Um, when we first got there, I mean, Eddie Cochran was still alive then. It was the driver. There was Sharon Sheely in the front. Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent was in the back. And uh, he was still alive then when the ambulance came. But I mean, it was very, very early in the morning. And, uh, you know, everybody knows the rest of it. But no, I mean, I'd, I'd, and then of course we had to take all the stuff back to the police station. So there were two, once we found out who it was, we had Eddie Cochran's guitar in the police station for about a month. Dee claimed that he began playing guitar using Eddie Cochran's Gretsch guitar at the police station that night. It seems like the Heavy Metal Kid's debut album was really the only full-length album that Dave D. ever produced. The album was recorded in just eight days, and it captured much of the band's live sound and persona. They were young, raw, and played no-nonsense, straightforward, pre-punk music. The album was well-received. Quote from Sounds Magazine from September 1975, The Heavy Metal Kids were launched by Atlantic in a blaze of publicity around 18 months or so, 
as a raucous rock reply to the then-fading glitter scene. Successful though the campaign may have been, in my eyes at least it seemed to reek of rather more than the usual amount of hype. When I mentioned this to Holton, he really jumped down my throat. There was no big campaign, he exclaimed. I'll tell you what happened. In every paper, in a single week, we put in what amounted to a two-page ad, four quarters and one page. That's all we had. The Heavy Metal Kids had the lowest budget that Atlantic has ever given to a band for a first album. It was the way it was done. And apart from that, I was shooting my mouth off to the press left, right, and center at the time. Seriously, we must be the most under-publicized hype band in the business. The Heavy Metal Kids made a breakthrough appearance on the old Grey Whistle Test on the BBC and broke an attendance record at the Marquee. They also went over well at the Reading Festival. A quote from Melody Maker in December of 1974, Gary Holton is a heavy metal kid, their lead singer in fact. As far as he is concerned, that initial reaction was nothing less than perfect. The kids were at least getting attention. We created an impact, we came on strong, really laying on people at the beginning. We told people that they had to look at us, and they did. Holton really typifies the kind of arrogance and aggression that the kids seem to be striving towards. He's an East End kid with a background of gangs and street violence. On stage, he comes across like an awkward cross between a tripped-out Artful Dodger and a Skid Row hooligan. Sometimes that act is a little too convincing. We do get into a little bit of trouble. We seem to attract trouble. I don't know why. Probably because of the name. At the gigs, people always want to challenge you to see if you really are heavy. I'm very aggressive to an audience, a bit rude, you know? And sometimes they don't understand that it's meant to be humorous. I try to ignore it most of the time. Reviews of the band have praised the physical energy of the kids' performance. Holton is nothing if not constantly active. At the Reading Festival, he flogged himself into a state of exhaustion trying to get the audience to their feet. The fact that he eventually succeeded has been clouded somewhat by the claims of some critics that the kids were allowed to overrun. When bands like Chili Willy were forced to curtail successful sets because of the strict schedule at the festival. It's indicative of the kind of suspicion with which the kids are surveyed, and brings to a head the argument that the band are nothing more than second-rate hype. That too, according to Holton, is untrue, and an attitude colored by envy. The band has had to fight as much as any other to survive. They've been lucky, he concedes. In fact, they've had a record company behind them, but they've not sold themselves into debt by relying on massive subsidies. Even Keith Richards was a fan of the heavy metal kids at the time, once remarking that, quote, In those days, the mid-70s, about the only thing I remember listening to is the heavy metal kids. Oh, 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 
At some point, guitarist Mickey Waller left the band to join Steve Marriott's All-Stars, and former member Cosmo rejoined the band. In January of 1975, they went into Ireland's Basing Street Studios to record their second album, Anvil Chorus, this time with producer Andy Johns, who was mainly known at that point for producing Humble Pie and Free. It was at this point that the band's name was shortened to just The Kids. As Gary explained to Sounds, I tell you what happened. The British press were the first people to call us The Kids, as an abbreviation, you know. They'd start off an article with the full name, Heavy Metal Kids, then later on shorten it, like they do with everybody. It didn't go further than that at the time, though. However, when we went over to America, we found that there was this thing over there that if a band played badly, they'd be called Heavy Metal. Everyone would say, Ah, that was a real Heavy Metal set, meaning that it was a load of shit. So we thought we'd better drop the front part of our name for the States, but we didn't change it permanently or anything, you know? Anyway, when we came back to Britain, we find that Atlantic sent out press releases proclaiming big name changes and all that. It was a bit of a cock-up in some ways, but in other ways it was good because it kept us in the press. After recording the second album, they hit the U.S. for a whirlwind tour with the likes of Alice Cooper, Kiss, and Rush. They got kicked off the Kiss portion of the tour after Gary and Danny were spotted rolling with laughter on the side of the stage at the sight of Gene Simmons' hair catching on fire. A quote from Danny Peyronel, We were kicked off that tour, but we didn't regret it for one moment. There were two incidents that they took objection to. We arrived early at the gig and talked to some kids who'd been hanging out and buying us drinks. Kiss later claimed that we'd pretended to be them because nobody knew what they looked like at the time. What they really objected to was when Gary and I stood at the side of the stage and Gene's hair caught fire while he was doing his fire-swallowing routine. He dropped to his knees and whacked his head against the floor to put it out. We were in hysterics. Who wouldn't have been? As far as I could tell, the Heavy Metal Kids did six dates on the Dress to Kill tour, the last of which being at the Freedom Hall Civic Center in Johnson City, Tennessee. Their U.S. tour ended with Gary performing on crutches after falling from the stage and breaking his leg. Danny Peyronel conceded that Gary's presence overshadowed the band's music. Quote, It detracted from the fact that we were an exciting rock and roll band. Gary went so far over the top that his outrageous behavior was all you could see. It was a drag, but you couldn't really complain because that's what the heavy metal kids were all about. In the space of just one year, they played 300 live gigs and traveled an average of 100 miles a day. Going from one gig to another all day, every day, Gary Holton developed a drinking problem, at one point drinking a bottle of brandy per day. Gary recalled, quote, I was into booze in a big way. What else do you do in a van going from one gig to another? A quote from Gary, I was into drugs too, but almost by accident. What happens is that one morning you're knackered, so someone gives you something and you feel great all day. Next day you need it again, only you need more. That year we had been doing a gig a night and I was taking things to wake me up, taking things to make me sleep, and boozing until dawn every day. Somebody looked at me across the hotel room and said, You look a bit queer. The next thing I knew I was staring at a hospital ceiling and I had been dead for two minutes. They only got my heart to work by punching me in the chest. My whole chest was one big bruise. 
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The heavy metal kids garnered a reputation for rearranging hotel rooms and got themselves banned by the Holiday Inn and the Ramada chains. Rooms were flooded, furniture destroyed, kitchen and bars stripped of food and alcohol. A quote from Ronnie Thomas, It was the 70s, so why not? In this country, you can't get a ham sandwich after 11 o'clock, and we'd all bowl back after a great gig high as kites. We were raiding the kitchen one night when suddenly the lights went on. Gary overtook me on the stairs with a string of raw sausages hanging from his pocket. When I got to the room, he was trying to flush him down the toilet, hiding the evidence. They outdid themselves the time their road crew snatched a 15-foot Christmas tree from the lobby of a Holiday Inn. A quote from Ronnie, They took it out of the pot and bent it in half to get it into the lift. There were all these birds in our room, so it was party time. We'd plugged all the lights in when bang, bang, bang! Hotel security were knocking at the door and accusing us of nicking their tree. We tried to deny it, 
but there was a huge trail of mud from the lift to the door of our room. Back in the UK, after a tour of France, Germany, and Scotland, Danny Peyronel left the band to join UFO as UFO's first keyboard player. His debut was on the No Heavy Petting album. Cosmo brought in keyboard player John Sinclair to replace him. At this point, the Heavy Metal Kids parted company with Atlantic Records, but were quickly snatched up by Mickey Most for his R.A.K. label. Work began on the next album to be called Kitsch, but then Gary Holton was fired amidst the storm of drink and drug-related headlines. Holton was sacked after a gig in Madrid. By then, he was no longer attending rehearsals, and the band felt he was dragging them down. They broke into his hotel room and found him naked and comatose in bed with a bottle of brandy. A quote from Keith Boyce, People had been telling Gary he was the band's star and that he didn't need us. He became too big for his boots. We covered his dick with some Uriah Heap stickers, wound toilet paper around his head, and put some ladies' silver stilettos on him. Then we carried him on the mattress down in the lift and left him in the lobby on a big round table. A quote from Sounds Magazine from 1976. Three days ago, Gary Holton had a nasty experience. It had taken place during the early hours of Wednesday morning while he was lying flat out, unsuspecting, alcohol besotten, for the most part dead to the world, wasted on top of the bed covers in his Munich hotel room. Someone, or more likely a group of people, snuck into the room and carted the unconscious kid into the corridor outside and placed him, naked, on his back on top of a large oak table. Then, they proceeded to garb his feet in socks and silver stilettos and placed a half-empty bottle of brandy in one hand and a bunch of wilting flowers in the other. Finally, they had shaved off all of his pubic hair and shoved a Uriah Heap sticker on the stubbled area. Discovered by the hotel chambermaids the following morning, Holton was arrested.
They originally planned to continue on without him, but it didn't work out. And in late 1977, Gary rejoined the band for a handful of live shows. Soon after, the long-delayed third album, Kitsch, was released by R.A.K. Records. It was recorded at a mobile studio in France, the band making full use of Mickey Most's hospitality. A quote from Ronnie Thomas, You know what the French are like. It was wine for breakfast, wine for lunch, and wine for the evening meal. Great fun. Mickey Most spent nearly four months mixing the album. It almost became an obsession for him. A quote from Keith Boyce, It was all done in secret. Nobody else could hear it until he felt it was done. He practically wore the tapes out. One of the engineers said you could almost see through them because they'd been played so often. The single from the album, She's No Angel, got the band on top of the pops, but Gary Holton continued down his self-destructive path. A quote from Ronnie Thomas, He was doing more drugs than ever and becoming obnoxious. He'd asked me to be the best man at his wedding, but he was turning into a nasty little bastard. On stage it all went out the window. He'd just sing whatever song came into his head.
John Sinclair left the band and they brought in a second guitarist named Jay Williams. They recorded one last single called Delirious, which is arguably the band's best song. Further live shows followed, but the band was falling apart. A quote from Ronnie Thomas, As Gary was getting ready to go on, he was wearing white cowboy boots, no trousers, and a pink posing pouch. Across his chest he had two bullet belts. Gary was completely out of it, trying to load a Smith & Wesson revolver. Bullets were scattered all over the floor. People were trampling over live ammunition. In the front row of this particular gig at the Speakeasy, was Johnny Rotten, who loudly and theatrically pronounced BORING! BORING! Funnily enough, the Heavy Metal Kids were the original inspiration for Malcolm McLaren when he decided to put together a band eventually called the Sex Pistols. A quote from Ronnie Thomas, Gary was holding court with me and a group of others by the fireplace when the atmosphere suddenly changed. Johnny Rotten had walked into the room with two big bouncers. He always had to be protected because he was an obnoxious little cunt. There was this deathly silence when finally Rotten undid this huge gold safety pin and put it on Gary's lapel. He then patted Gary's cheek and said, You've been ripped off, Holt, and how does it feel? A quote from Danny Payronel. What happened to the Pistols in 1977 should have been us. We were one of the first bands to have the term punk rock used to describe us.
In 1978, after a gig on the Isle of Man, the proceeds from which were squandered by Gary in the casino, Keith Boyce decided that enough was enough. He left the band just before an ill-fated tour of Germany, but came back and did one last gig at the music machine, after which the heavy metal kids were no more. Following the demise of the band, Gary Holton pivoted back to acting and made his screen debut in 1979 when he played the character of Eddie Hairstyle in the television movie The Knowledge. 
Not turned up then, has he? Fancy lift home? Or somewhere? Jan. I've got my brother-in-law's van round the corner. Back seat folds down flat. What makes you think I'll do? Please yourself. Holton had an uncredited role in Quadrophenia, and after appearing on a television series called Shoestring, he landed the lead part of Ken in the 1979 film Bloody Kids. You can't touch. I didn't. Then what are you poking me for? I've given it all up now, anyway. I've given up screwing. I'm on my own now, at last. That's right, your armor plate, isn't it? In 1980, Holton played the character Keith in an episode of the television series Play for Today and was a minor character in the film Breaking Glass. He appeared in the 1981 television film Tiny Revolutions and guest starred as Rick Sloan in the television series The Gentle Touch. He also sang the theme tune for a 1980s British children's drama Murphy's Mob and a jingle for a blue jeans ad called Don't Be a Dummy. Gary Holton next landed the part of Wayne Winston Norris in the popular comedy drama Elf Wiedersehen Pet. Holton played a cockney carpenter nicknamed London. The character liked his women, music, and drink, quite similar to the actor's off-screen personality. <laughs> Hello, Arthur? Yes, this is uh, Wayne Winston Norris with your early morning call. <laughs> is this your idea of a joke, you cretin? No, 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 no. I'm not joking, because I know you ain't got a sense of humour. See, look, while we're ringing is to say bye-bye, because we're off elsewhere, you see, and to tell you about the little going-away present we've left you. Now, look, if you care to look outside your front door... <laughs> Whoa! Holton landed the role, the first of the seven main characters to be cast, after he was introduced to Ian Lafreniere at a party. Lafreniere and his writing partner Dick Clement had been drafting storylines and working on an idea given to them by Frank Rodham, who was the director of Quadrophenia. I just bide your time. No need to panic. What you've got to realize is there's thousands of them out there. I mean, 
birds are like the Chinese army. Once you jump a few, you think that's it for a while. And his whole new battalion comes over the hill. I only want one. Yeah, well, that's where you and me differ, son. I want the lot. Well, this is Gary. Hello, Gary. Hello, 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 hello. That's, that's, a, that's a, yeah, go on, give him a clap. That's a wonderful character, that. That's a really good character. You sort of seem to get slightly typecast, don't you? Is it, is it very close to you? Not really. No, I'm, I'm a re really, I come from Rada, you see. I'm, I'm a very serious man at heart, you know? Very shut up. I'm very serious. No, it's nothing like me whatsoever. I don't like women. That, that, that women, that women, not that women. <laughs> Never mind. Well, why, how did you get into Avida Same Pet? Uh, you know Frank Rodham? Do I know Frank Rodham? He directed Quadrophenia, and both of us were in Quadrophenia, you see. Yes, how, how did he approach you? Go on, tell us. Well, I was uh, a little bit down and out, you know. Bit broke. You're right, love. <laughs> She's shaking like a leaf up here, you know. <laughs> Am I that menacing? Frank Rodham, you see, there I was broke, no money, and he says, you want a part in Quadrophenia, you know? So I did it. That's how I met you, isn't it? Yeah. And this rabble. Is, it, is there going to be any, any more of Edith's own pets? Secret, it's a secret. There's a chance, there's a chance. Yeah, it's in the talking stages. Right, and, and also, are, are you typecast? Because in Quadrophenia, you, you, you were the sort of vaguely similar, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. It was written about me. Well, the part was written for me then, put it that way. Was, was there a lot of ad-libbing going on? Because it was written by, it, it was written by Dick Clements and, and... Yeah, well, there were only four or five scripts. Dick Clements, in the friend, eh? Long word. <laughs> well, it's like. French, you see, I don't know French. <laughs> Yeah, it was, there were only four or five scripts to kick off with, and then they wrote the rest around us. It was quite simple, really. Oh, that's good. So, so did you sort of put writing in and that? Did you...? Uh, they just observed us, you know, in Germany with the hookers and things like that. What, what happened in Germany? That's what, I, I've heard so many stories, but never actually heard the actual story. Well, what happened? all the hookers turned out to be transvestites, you know, and it was... <laughs> and we, we got them all free, you know, they were all laid on after. You imagine, you sort of grab, going to grab hold of um, someone's drink, and, uh, you know, it weren't there anymore, if you know what I mean. Uh... I, know, I know you hired half of the... the uh, what's that place where all the hookers hang out? <laughs> Don't you know? <laughs> the Reaper Barn. The Reaper Barn. Or Raper Barn, you know. Depends sort of what time of night it is. And you, you used, to, used to be in the Heavy Metal Kids, right? Yeah. And you're going to, you're going to sing for us, aren't you? Yeah, well, this ain't the Heavy Metal Kids. I'm calling this band the Actors, you know. Well, I think you should go and sing us a song. All right? Yeah. Good luck.
a quote from TV Times magazine from 1983, in an attempt to provide new evidence for the continuing debate of the validity of reincarnation, TV Times invited a group of television personalities to undergo hypnotic regression under Britain's leading exponent, Joe Keaton. Keaton is a hypnotherapist and researcher who declares, I am not in the business of creating sensations. For that, you should look to the United States. The TV Times session was conducted in a quiet sitting room in a modern flat adjoining our London offices. The first subject was Gary Holton, who plays Wayne in ITV's Alveter Zane Pet. He sat opposite Keaton in a high-back armchair and was put into a trance, not by staring into the hypnotist's eyes or by watching a swinging pendulum, but by listening to Keaton's deep and resonant voice. Its tones matched the alpha rhythms of his brain, the hypnotist explained. Holton was a cooperative subject. Within minutes, he was under hypnosis. His head slumped to one side, eyes closed. I now have direct access to his subconscious, said Keaton. We'll take him back to his childhood, and then to the time before he was born. To Holton, he said, You are going back, Gary, back in time to when you were two. You are two. It is Christmas Day. Oh, dear, why are you crying? Tears were streaming down Holton's face. Got no presents, he replied in a childish voice. Why ever not? asked Keaton. Got to eat my turkey up first, the whimpering Holton explained. When Keaton strived to reveal evidence of Holton's previous existence, this bizarre dialogue ensued. There are stones, rocks all around us. I'm putting them on piles, and when there are enough, we put them onto logs and float them down the river. We aren't paid any money, just our food. There are lots of us. They don't tell us what they're building. I don't know where we are. I was brought here in a ship. I don't know how old I am, but I'm big enough to carry heavy stones. At this point, Keaton shouted angrily in a foreign tongue. Holton looked confused and squirmed in his chair. When he brought his subject back to his consciousness, Keaton explained, I think you were genuinely regressed. When I shouted at you, I used an ancient druid's chant. I've had regressed subjects leaping from their chairs and fleeing from the room when I shout that chant. During his time on Alviderzane Pet, Holton had only two other roles. He appeared in the TV series Minder, in which he played the villain Barry in 1984, and he also briefly appeared in the first episode of the television series Bullman. And nobody's so far as I did dead woman. Now the tickets for tomorrow. Seven o'clock, he's right in the morning. Maybe I'll just see if she turns up. Have you checked the airlines, passenger list? No, I was on my way to when I got mugged by a bleeding charity, didn't I? Hello, Mr. Bowman. <laughs> How's crime? Now, there's a funny thing. As a matter of fact, Bernie, I was going to ask you. Meaning? You were seen. Do what? In the Yank motor, you were seen. Not with you, Squire. Hey, you've got some great films in hand, sir. Yeah. What do you got in the back room? Mind your own business. You're out of the filth now, remember? The little matter of an alibi, Bernard. Alibi, George? I was with you. Locked in deep conversation at the time of that blagging. Look, I've got a watertight memory for incidents oh. and for times of the day. 
comes from years of catching stupid monkeys like you. You know why blokes like you keep on getting nicked? Because you're dead stupid. All right, that's it. Come on, out. Out. Go on, mate. Get lost. Right. Before I have to sort you out, mate. You ain't got a tin badge to hide behind now, have you? Come on, out. Get yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Citizen to citizen, Pillock. You tried to shoot me today. Why? I didn't. I, on my baby son's eyes, I didn't. Who? Look, I don't know. Look, you can't do this to me, you know. You, you need to croak me. So, under the law, then. You've got nothing to hide. Mr Bullman, I had nothing to do with it. Attempted murder, eh? That's a cock and in with my history. Your alibi won't wash, you know. We talked at 9.20. You still had time to do the money shot. I did not try to kill you. My son. Try looking a bit closer to home, mate. You what? Just what I said, all right? I don't ask no more. For he who shoots at coppers, well, ex-coppers, would be quite happy to take a black and decker to a simple bloke like me. Who? Why don't you touch up one of your grasses, eh? One of your regulars. Which one? It's Kevin, isn't it? Who? Kevin. Kevin the barman, right? That better be kosher. Yeah, well, if it is, do you reckon you could uh, help me out on the timings of the 19th, Mr B, eh? Because oh. I'll tell you what, that D.I. Holmes, mm. right, he's got it in for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he's going to chuck away the key, he will. Mm. Mm. Can smell the veal now, mate. Eight years, eh? That, that make me old. Mm. I mean, look, you're on this side of the street now, George, mm. eh? Do me a favour and I owe you one. Right? You make me puke. Holton was offered the role of the villain Nasty Nick Cotton in the television soap opera East Enders, but he turned down the role, and it was instead given to his friend John Altman, who bore a strong resemblance to Gary. In fact, Altman would later take Gary's place in a reformed heavy metal kids. Gary Holton's post-kids musical endeavors were sparse, in December of 1978, he stood in for the damned vocalist Dave Vanian for a short Scottish tour. He was also apparently at least considered as a possible replacement for Bon Scott, but he never even auditioned. Gary released three albums in collaboration with keyboardist Casino Steel from the Hollywood Brats and the Boys. They apparently did well in Norway. Ordinary boring Jimmy Brown 
1985, Gary briefly joined the band with former Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock and James Stevenson, formerly of Chelsea and Gen X. The band was called The Gang Show. Nothing came of it. Gary was dead before the end of the year. Midnight Leslie Cohen reporting. The actor and pop singer Gary Holton has died. The star of TV's Alfida Sane Pet was found dead at a friend's home in London today. Tony Grant reports. Gary, who played Cockney womanizer Wayne in the TV series, was just 33. Yet he'd been on the screen for 20 years. He was once the Milky Bar Kid in the adverts. His was the voice saying, don't forget the fruit gums, Mum. Later, he was the singer with rock band The Heavy Metal Kids. He was in the films Quadrophenia and Breaking Glass and on the West End stage in the hit musical Pump Boys and Dinettes. But Gary's image attracted the Fleet Street gossip writers and stories of his women, his drinking, his alleged drug-taking appeared frequently. Tonight, his close friend John B. told newsmen he was a smashing guy when you got to know him. And that's all from Radio 1 for now. Join us again for the early show at 6 o'clock with Mark Page. From all of us here, a very good night. A coroner recorded an open verdict on the death of Gary Holton, star of our Fiedersein Pet, after hearing he'd taken a lethal cocktail of heroin and alcohol. The pathologist said he'd also used Valium and cannabis on the day he died last October. But the coroner, Dr. David Paul, said there was no clear evidence when he took the heroin. Holton was found dead by his fiancée, Janer McEwen, in his bed on October 25, 1985. He had died from an overdose of alcohol and morphine, with traces of diazepam and cannabis in his system. Pathologist Rufus Crompton said during his inquest that Gary would have been drinking less than half an hour before his death, and that the morphine would have made him unconscious within a matter of minutes. Holton had a morphine level of 0.8 milligrams per liter. 0.5 milligrams per liter is considered invariably fatal. Gary died halfway through the second series of Alfeder's Aim Pet, but the producers used body doubles and editing of dialogue already recorded to allow the series to be completed. They eventually re-scripted the series, such that in every indoor scene that originally included Holton, excuses were made for his absence. During the weeks leading up to Gary's death, the British tabloid newspapers were relentlessly running exclusive articles on Gary's private life after they revealed to the nation that not only was Gary in a tangled love triangle relationship, but he was also a recovering heroin addict. In the fall of 85, Gary left the UK with the rest of the Alveders and Pets staff to film on location in Spain, with British tabloid reporters following his every move. I'm getting fed up with the birds and booze image of myself. I feel sorry for my mom having to read stuff like that. It's boring and repetitive, complained Gary. A lot of it is my own doing. I shoot my mouth off. You want to be rich and famous when you're young, but at 33, I think I'm going to have to take stock of myself. I'm starting to realize I can't bullshit anymore. I don't see enough of my mother or two brothers. My biggest problem is the effect my publicity has on my family. On returning to the UK, it was discovered that the star were running further stories on Gary when it was alleged that his former agent had locked Gary away for a month in an attempt to rid him of his drug addiction. The impact on Gary was devastating. 
Gary's mother, Joan Pugh, fell ill after reading the newspaper stories, and this in turn depressed Gary as he was unable to travel to her home to see her due to his Alfederzain pet filming commitments. The filming of Alfederzain pet was becoming more and more intolerable, with reported on and off set difficulties. Gary's problems added to the mix as he was now in a self-destructive downward spiral. A show insider revealed, quote, Gary Holton was a terrible problem. I have never worked with a totally self-destructive drug addict before. He was making life extraordinarily difficult for everybody. I realized that an addict not only destroys himself, but pretty well destroys everything around him. He was totally out of control for the last couple of months. We were trying to keep him and the show going. Gary spent the night before his death in the Warrington Hotel in London. Two friends who joined him at the bar at the hotel remember him saying, I'm at rock bottom. I feel as though I'm looking over the edge of life. There's nothing left. And just when I thought I'd pulled it all together so well, I was just getting myself together again. And someone brings it all back and throws it in my face. It's wrecking my life. He rolled up the sleeves of his black satin bomber jacket and asked defiantly, Do those look like the arms of someone still on heroin? I wanted to get involved in some sort of therapy to help people on drugs. Now no one will believe me. They'll think I'm going to lead them further into it. I feel as though I've been kicked in the teeth. No one will take me seriously anymore. It's all over. It all seems hopeless. Gary seemed like a man desperate for someone to talk to, searching for a shoulder to cry on as they leaned on the bar. For over an hour he was consoled by his friends and told that the public would soon forget his heroin days. For a moment he seemed convinced, and then remarked, It's the people closest to me have been hurt the most. At closing time, Gary told his friends about a record he had made. When they asked what it was called, he answered, Catch a Falling Star. This time his friends didn't know whether he was serious or joking. As they left the pub, Gary shook his friends' hands and said, I'll be in touch. His friends drove off and Gary was seen leaving the pub alone, walking towards his home.
Later that night, a forlorn Gary arrived at his friend Paul's flat, quote, seeking sanctuary. Shortly after entering the flat, he had a cup of tea and then was seen retiring to a bedroom. In the early hours of the following morning, he was found by his girlfriend, lying dead in bed beside her. Gary had an appointment that day with his manager to discuss his financial situation. The inquest into Gary's death on December 19, 1985, left enormous unanswered questions. The coroner, Dr. David Paul, recorded an open verdict. The medical evidence had shown that Gary had traces of alcohol and morphine in his blood. Dr. Paul said, quote, It must follow from the medical evidence that this man had a fix of heroin. The absence of any evidence to indicate when this was taken and the absence of evidence about finding a syringe and other material for drug abuse leaves enormous unanswered questions. Initially, this was perfectly straightforward. A man who has been a heroin user under stress took a fix that proved to be fatal. There is no evidence at all to support a finding that this death is due to misadventure. The gaps in evidence lead me to record the only possible finding in this matter. Following the inquest, Gary's mother contacted the Star with the help of an acquaintance to inform them that they had to retract what they had written. She wanted an apology from the newspaper which was not forthcoming. Gary Holton found fame in the TV series Ovidazane Pet. The Cockney carpenter won millions of fans in his acting career, but some of his colleagues were more reticent about his other public performances. From his early days as a rock singer, he'd fought and finally lost a long battle against drink and drugs. But to the viewers, he'll always be the charming, cheeky Cockney he portrayed. To the press, though, he personified sex, drugs and rock and roll, with drink and drugs leading to his death last October, aged just 33. But now there's a record made before he died, with proceeds going to Pete Townsend's double-O drug rehabilitation charity. It was Gary's wish to help all charities, but especially drug addicts. It would help at least one my mother and not have the anxiety of the drugs that I've been through. And it was his wish to be off drugs. And he'd been through such a lot. 
Gary Zellweterzay and Peck co-stars Jimmy Nail, Tim Healy, Timothy Spall, Kevin Waitley, Pat Roach, and Christopher Fairbank all spoke at his funeral. Kevin Wheatley, who played Neville in the show, said, Gary was a very close friend of mine, and I'm saddened by his death. He was a very talented lad and an integral part of the series. He will be greatly missed. Tim Healy, who played Dennis, said, I feel completely unable to talk about it. I'm awfully sorry. It's been such a shock. Pat Roach, who played Bomber, said, Gary was a great entertainer both in and out of character. He was always laughing and always had a smile. Alvita Zane Gary from All the Lads. You're going to go to the States, yeah, Nashville? Yes. I'll be off to London. Well, you give my regards from Mick and Keith and Ronnie. Will do, will do. Listen, while you're over there, first, tell George Gowers not to drink too much, OK? <laughs> <laughs> all right, George. And uh, secondly, all those blue-eyed blondes, give them a kiss from me and tell them there ain't no show.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 